Welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon with me, Marcus Peter, filling in for Al Cresta. Please pray for Al's recovery uh, and pray for the work we do here at Ave Marie Radio. Fifty-five years ago, Pope St. Paul VI promulgated a document that was monumental in its promulgation. Not so much because of the content of the document, but because of the way it was stated and the time in which it was promulgated. This document is Humanae Vitae. And within the document, he unequivocally clarified and solidified the Church's perennial stance against artificially contraceptive sex. Now, this document is often seen as the last word on the matter, and everything that we do now is to echo exactly what Pope Paul VI was doing in echoing the patrimony of the Church. John Paul II's Evangelium Vitae continues to that nature. Two days ago, the Pontifical Academy for Life, founded by no one other than St. John Paul II himself, published a document called The Theological Ethics of Life, Scripture, Tradition, and Practical Challenges. The document is a very short 528 pages, and it's not very accessible. It, it's going to cost you 30 euros if you'd like to obtain a copy and read it. But with me to discuss what some of the things that they spoke about, because they spoke about br- very briefly how the theology of marriage and sex in the family need to change. And they need to change to embrace contraceptive sex and euthanasia and so on and so forth. So with me to discuss the natural law and theology behind the church's teaching for sex, marriage, and the family is Dr. Nathan Schlitter. Dr. Schlitter is a friend, and he is a professor of philosophy and religion at Hillsdale College. One of his books, one of his most recent books, is Selfish Libertarians and Socialist Conservatives. He is also the teacher of and I, I joke not when I say this, the world-renowned course at Hillsdale College, The Philosophy of Love, Sex, and Marriage. This course is arguably one of the best courses that Hillsdale College has to offer. Dr. Schlitter, it is an honor to have you on the program. How are you doing, good sir? I'm doing great, Marcus. Thanks for having me on your show. No problem at all. I, w- I was very, very glad to hear that uh, you were able to take this invitation. So, uh, let's let's talk about natural law first. Let's open the conversation on natural law. I throw around that word very much when I'm teaching scripture and, and theology in general, but what is natural law? A lot of Catholics seem to know about it, but they don't know in, enough of what it is. What a great question, and it's, it's good in light of the contraception question that you raised earlier in your opening remarks, because uh, Humana Vitae does, in fact, uh, claim that its teaching on uh, artificial contraception is based on the natural law as well as theology. It asserts that several times. And so to claim that something is a function of the natural law means that the, the moral principles involved flow from our nature as human beings and that those moral norms are knowable by our natural powers of reasoning and volition. So it's a claim both about the, the source of the moral norms, uh, rooted in, in the kind of being that we are, and it's a claim about how we know those norms. And the law is classically affirmed in the Book of Romans, uh, chapters 1 and 2, mm-hmm. when St. Paul writes that... Uh, uh, those who do not, you know, did not receive divine revelation will still be held accountable for their actions because they know the law that is written on their hearts 
uh, by the Creator. So there's an affirmation of that there in Romans, and it becomes articulated and developed within the uh, Catholic and Christian tradition. Thank you very much for that, Dr. Slita. So uh, let, let's just hone in the conversation then. Uh, you know, the, the Pontifical Academy for Life, the document that they publish uh, in the introduction, it states that they want to see the document as a contribution that elaborates a Christian vision of life by expounding it from a perspective of anthropology that's appropriate to present-day cultural mediation. And therein lies the problem, because based on what you're saying is, if natural law is ingrained upon the human soul, then it isn't something that's subject to modern cultural augmentation. That's right. So I always get nervous when I see some of the jargon that I saw associated with this document. My understanding is that it's not been translated yet, and mm-hmm. so I ha- haven't seen uh, any detailed analysis, summary, or analysis of the, of the arguments, of the content yet. Uh, so there's a lot of speculation about that. But it does appear to be urging uh, change in uh, uh, what I think is an impossible change, but it seems to be urging a change in the Church's teaching on contraception. Its reasons and justifications are a little unclear, but it, it's using language uh, like praxis, words that no lay person is going to understand <laughs> that's right narratives or this kind of thing and this is kind of typical red flag language for diluting doctrine in my opinion you got to be cautious about it uh i think the move that's often made and it's a really really important one to keep in mind is a perversion of what is in fact an authentic uh church uh theological position, and that is the, the notion of the development of doctrine. Mm-hmm. And this, this is a notion that St. John Henry Newman uh, coined to account for apparent changes in the history of the Church. The fact that the canon of Scripture, for example, is not settled until rather late, uh, the Nicene Creed in 325 and the Four Ecumenical Councils f- four centuries later before uh, the Church is clearly stating the nature of Christ, Christological debates, Trinitarian debates, etc. I don't need to rehearse that to you. And so Newman uh, wanted to uh, account for this, uh, this apparent change in teaching, and his innovation was to say that truth never changes, the truth can never contradict itself, the truth is settled, the truth of divine revelation did not end you know, ended with the death of the last apostle, but our understanding of that truth can deepen uh, under the press of circumstances. Questions are raised, new exigencies happen, and so there can be a development and a deepening of how we express and articulate what we believe. So that's a really important element of our Catholic faith, I mm-hmm. think, and it relates to the contraception issue. We can talk about that, uh, but. That often gets perverted by, I guess, for lack of a better term, I'll call progressive, uh, the progressive theological wing of mm-hmm. Catholic theologians, who take uh, that development of doctrine to be not just a development of our understanding of doctrine, but actually developments of doctrine themselves, such that what was true in one point can be regarded now as false at another time, and that there can be actually reversals and complete changes in church teaching. 
And so there's a, I, I think, an abuse of that term, development of doctrine, to apply not just our knowledge but to the doctrines themselves. Right, and, and that's a fantastic platform for us to start discussing the church's teaching on contraception because one of the arguments that's put forth, not just by this document, but as you would know, teaching in Hillsdale College at large, I mean, granted, Hillsdale's an extremely, it's a very good conservative milieu, but when you step out of the conservative milieu, you're going to hear voices say stuff like the, the, the church's teachings are rigid on this area. It has to evolve and flow with the time. So tell us why, from a natural law perspective, is contraceptive sex contrary to the human person and our functioning? Oh, that's, that's a great question. Maybe before we jump to that question, can we back up just for a moment? Oh, sure thing. Uh, because you said in your opening remarks that the impact of human vitae was not so much in the, uh, the, the fact of the announcement of the church's teaching, but the way in which it was expressed. And I'm not, I'm, I'm, I might differ with that a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, maybe, but maybe I misunderstood you. But, um, but your audience, may, maybe many of them know that the church, since its very origin, has taught that artificial contraception is intrinsically immoral. Mm-hmm. And, and the thing is that no one questioned that teaching uh, through most of the church's history. None of the, none of the Protestant reformers even questioned or challenged that teaching. Luther didn't challenge it. Calvin didn't challenge it. No one challenged it. And the the earliest change, or, or really overt challenging of, of of the church teaching on this within Christendom, occurs at the Lambeth Conference in 1930, the yep. Anglican Conference, which changes is the very first mainstream denomination to, to reverse that teaching and to allow for limited use of artificial contraception within marriage. And within 20 years, 30 years, the entire Christian world, apart from Roman Catholicism, has caved on this issue. It's a remarkable and extraordinary reversal of Christian teaching. And it's a story in itself that should be told. One place that suggests uh, your audience may want to look at is a book by Alan Carlson, uh, one-time faculty member at Hillsdale. Carlson himself is a Lutheran. He's not a Catholic, <laughs> but he does a great job telling the story of how anti-Catholicism was used to leverage, in America at least, mm-hmm. the whole-scale abandonment of the traditional church teaching. So by 1968, uh, the church is standing alone, and a lot of Czech Catholic theologians are urging the church to ch- to modify its teaching, especially based on hormonal contraception. The pill has been invented, and the thought is, well, this is not really interfering with conjugal sex. It's kind of just changing hormonal balances in the body or this sort of thing. And I think there was a lot of expectation among those theologians that Paul VI would uh, follow the, the, the path that these other Christian denominations had. So when he did not, that that created really, I think, one of the most um, pivotal controversies of the 20th century that's continuing in the 21st century. But the, I, I bring all this up to say that um, reflection on the whys of human sexuality have come very late. The what's were taken for granted for 1900 years. Right, exactly. And I would say even earlier than that. So when, when people are just taking the what's for granted, like we're seeing this today, why can't a, a, 
a man go in a girl's locker room and call himself a woman? Well, uh, 10 years ago, we would have just laughed and said, is that a joke? Right, exactly. Now we, now we have to make justifications for it. You know, we have to actually dig deep into human biology and anatomy and, and psychology and think about the reasonings in ways that we didn't have to do before. And so I think contraception is similar in that way that uh, th there has been an explosion of development of doctrine since that teaching on contraception to figure out what those whys are, what those justifi deep justifications are. Well, and I want to thank you, Doctor. Thank you so much, Dr. Schlitter. And we're going to continue this conversation on the other side of the break to talk about how Humanae Vitae and the Church's teaching on sex and marriage has been consistent throughout its patrimony. I'm Marcus Peter filling in for Al Cresta on Cresta in the afternoon. Welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon with me, Marcus Peter, filling in for Al Cresta. We ask you to continue praying for him and praying for Ave Maria Radio and all the work that we do in our apostolate. I'm talking to Dr. Nathan Schlitter, Professor of Philosophy and Religion at Hillsdale College and the Professor of a particular course, Philosophy of Love, Sex and Marriage. And we're addressing in particular some of the claims that have been made, some of the uh, suggestions that have been made, if you will, in the recent document that came out from the Pontifical Academy for Life. For those of you who are interested, we invite you to look up the work that Dr. Nathan Schlitter does on uh, Hillsdale College's website, and you can find some, one of his most recent books, Selfish Libertarians and Socialist Conservatives, The Foundations of the Libertarian Conservative Debate. So, Dr. Schlitter, uh, let's pick up where we left off. We were talking about the significance of Humanae Vitae, and, and just before that, so I want to clarify uh, that when I said uh, specifically that it was not so much what Pope Paul VI said, it was how it was said. It was because, precisely because of the Lambeth Conference and the, 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 the sheer opening of the floodgates that that caused within the Protestant sphere. Because in, in my Protestant years before becoming Catholic, it was very clear that contraception wasn't so much, uh, it, it wasn't so much a whether or not you should do it, it's what kind you should get. And, and that was what pastors had in terms of conversation uh, with young couples uh, getting married. So, uh, the fact of the matter is when Pope Paul VI came out with this very firm line drawn of saying, no, this is something we cannot air, uh, we, we cannot augment, we cannot change because this has been handed down. And and to a degree, he, he's essentially saying that this is doctrine that cannot be changed. So uh, the way in which he set that out in the prophetic manner, you take a look at Humanae Vitae and, and you know, you, you see him saying, if we go down this path, these are some of the things that will happen to marriage and the family. And boy, was he yeah. right. So, oh, yeah, yeah I'd, I'd like you to just continue telling us about that and then link it to just contra contraceptive sex. Why, why is that such a big deal at all? Right. Okay, great. So you asked, and thanks for clarifying your, your point there at the beginning. I, I'm with you. Uh, entirely on that point. Everything you just said is great. Uh, you asked uh, in the last session about you know, what exactly is the natural law argument against uh, the use of artificial contraception. And so the, uh, the short of the, this, this is a, we can, we can go to the tight argument and we can just unpack it and it just kind of layers and layers of depth. Uh, this, this is where I would start. I'd say that in today's gospel, uh, Christ says that uh, uh, man was not made for the Sabbath, the Sabbath was made for man. And we might say the same thing about the natural moral law. 
the, the moral law was made for man, not man for the moral law. And so the moral law is made to, pr- to protect and promote certain human goods. So, so every single ten commandment of the Ten Commandments is, I like to tell my students, it's like a shadow cast by some great good. There's some good that's being protected there, the goodness of God, the goodness of the family, the goodness of marriage, the goodness of speech and truth-telling, this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about contraception, the, the core thing we have to do is, like, what is the good here? Like, what is this great human good that this negative precept, if you will, is protecting? And, and the clearer you get on that good, uh, the, the clearer it, it becomes why not just artificial contraception is wrong, but the host of other uh, church teachings on sexual integrity come into play. Fornication, masturbation, um, uh, 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 plural marriage or whatever, why these things are impossible because they violate the so what is that great good? The great good is, is f- fundamentally this. It's human sexuality uh, foc- focused in, on the reproductive systems and the reproductive organs. Mm-hmm. The complementary reproductive system has internal to it, intrinsic to it, two meanings, a unitive meaning and a procreative meaning. Yep. And those meanings are indissolubly linked. Uh, why are they linked? Because only in... In, in sexual intercourse, only in sexual intercourse, what we can call the conjugal act, mm-hmm. um, do two human beings become a single reproductive organism. They become, the, the Bible is actually literally correct on this. When they describe uh, sex as a two-in-one flesh union. Yep. Because, because these, you know, what is an organ? An organ is a functional part to a whole. Your liver, your kidneys, your heart, they're called organs, right? They're organs because they serve the functioning of the whole body. And your reproductive organs by themselves are not functional for an organism. They're directed to the complement, the complement, complementarity of a single reproductive, um, unit which occurs when a man and woman engage in, in, in sex, sexual intercourse. But we, we, so there's a, something very unique. When a man and a woman engage in sex, they become a, literally, biologically, a two-in-one flesh union. But now we just, but lots of other animals within the animal kingdom are promiscuous. They're not yep. monogamous and whatever. So what we have to add is that we're talking about human persons here. There's something very unique about the human person, which makes human animals different from non-human animals. That's right. And that is the this is the this is the key insight. And I think when you when you grasp it, then everything kind of falls into place. And I and I love the point. I think it's really kind of, in my view, sort of revelatory, even though it's right in front of our noses. And it's the personal meaning of our sexuality, yep. the the way in which our our biological sexuality is somehow uniquely uh, pegged to our whole person, even progressive, even the most ardent defenders today of the hookup culture and sexual autonomy are, are the first ones to be deeply offended by any kind of uh, non-consensual uh, assault human sexuality. Right. And the question is why? Like, I'm not questioning that that should be the case. I'm just saying, why do you think that? For example, why do we have laws in our books against assault? And then we single out just one form of assault called sexual assault with more severe penalties. 
why don't we have specific laws for, say, elbow assault or, <laughs> you know, neck assault or thigh assault? You know, we don't single those out. Like, that is, even our law, even the, the most vocal members of, say, the Me Too movement and the, the feminists, and I, by the way, I think the Me Too movement has a lot of merit. I think there's a lot of hope in that movement if it can be directed the right way. Mm-hmm. But why, why are they aware that when, that, that when our, our, our sexuality is violated, it could be traumatic for us in a way that no other part of our body is traumatic. Why do people go into counseling for years? Okay, so I'm belaboring the point, which is to say we all know that our sexuality is bound up with our whole person, not just part of our person. We can't just um, uh, just hive off that part of ourselves and feel like a, a mere tool or instrument. Right. And if that's true, then every time we engage in sexual activity, we're engaging our whole entire person. And anything short then, so when you've got a two-in-one flesh union, an organic body union of two persons involving their whole persons, the only kind of relationship that expresses the true meaning of what's going on there between human embodied animal human persons is marriage is the marriage act Mm -hmm. so any any uh, sex sexual intercourse that's you know is not does not respect those unitive and procreative dimensions is is violating that moral law and therefore a violation of humanity itself exactly you're harming your human good you're you're damaging yourself you're damaging the other person and don't we have evidence for that right (laughs) I mean, the, 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 the sexual revolution, the culture created by that sexual revolution is strewn, even in secular culture. Like in my class, I send my students out like detectives. They have to go out and uh, interpret secular music and movies and fiction. I just say, look around you, look at your TV series, like interpret how the human experience is being uh, expressed here. You know, what they find is really actually quite extraordinary. In movies that seem to be celebrating the sexual revolution, things even like Sex in the City, what you find uh, is some truth-telling. You know, the, the, the women are very dissatisfied, right. very unhappy. Right. Uh, they're, 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 they're looking for something that they're not finding here. And the reports from the field keep coming back that this is not to the advantage of anyone, especially women, though I think the men are suffering as well. Oh, so absolutely. Artific- yeah. You think about Mick Jagger, for example, right? He, he can't always get what you want. And, I mean, that, that, exactly. All of these things are cries of the human person because man only truly finds himself when he makes a complete gift of himself to the other. Amen. Amen. And when you, when any other use of your sexuality outside of that, you're just telling a lie with your body. It's you know your by that the whole point you, you you just elicited this, but you know John Paul II describes our sexuality as having an intrinsic language, mm-hmm. and you can't people think they can just make up words, uh, and they'll, they'll they'll be meaningful, but you can get into the philosophy of language, but it doesn't work that way. You know, uh, language has has is pegged to realities that people can share, mm-hmm. and human sexuality has an intrinsic language. You know, you go up to someone and punch them in the face and say, I love you, uh, they're going to look at you funny. That doesn't look like a loving act. You know? That's right. That's right. Uh, the, and so any act, so because it's hardwired, hardwired into our nature, this truth about the human good, any sex that doesn't respect uh, the, these unitive and procreative dimensions uh, is a lie. You're lying with your body. 
And artificial contraception does that uh, in every case. It tells a lie with the body uh, because what it does is breaks up that that totality of good. Yep. Now I want to make clear here and something we should talk about, but you know, it's up to you how, where you want to go with this, but you know, a lot of my students are Protestant and many of them are hearing this for the first time. Mm-hmm. You know, they, uh, their, their parents ne- were never thought twice about the uh, morality of contraception, except an abortifacient sense. When, when they know about that, it's striking how many didn't even know about the abortifacient nature of a lot of the contraceptives on the market. Um, but then there are some Protestants I have who are on board with the church's teaching on contraception. Uh, some Missouri Synod Lutherans, for example, there are a few sort of Orthodox Presbyterians and some others, maybe from Bible churches. Right. Um, but, but they tend to be kind of pietists about it. So in their view... Uh, the, the, what, what, what the truth is about human uh, sexuality is that it's, you know, it's limited to marriage and marital sexuality um, because of the intrinsic uh, connection between the unit of procreative goods means that you have to actually be intending procreation uh, in, right. in the conjugal act. Right, and, and that's going to have to be a con- that's going to have to be a conversation for another time, Dr. Schlitter, because sure. we've come to the okay. end of this segment. But I want to thank you for joining us on this program. I, I mean, that time literally flew by. Uh, yeah. Dr. Nathan Schlitter, Professor of Philosophy and Religion at Hillsdale College. I urge you to look up his work, get in touch with him, look up some of his books as well, Selfish Libertarians and Socialist Conservatives. I'm Marcus Peter, filling in for Al Cresta on Cresta in the Afternoon. <laughs>